0: everybody. All right, if you got your Bibles and you want to follow along, we are in the very last lesson um, of our Genesis study we're going to be in uh starting in Genesis 49:29 and we'll go all the way through the end of uh of chapter uh 50. Uh so um appropriately uh we've entitled uh the our lesson today the end. Um now the the title of our lesson is kind of a play on words. Of course, it represents the end of a uh, of a of a 19 month study in Genesis um, it re- represents the end of the book, obviously, and uh, uh, what a great study I think it's been. Um, I know I've I've gotten a, a ton out of it. It's a little bittersweet for me. I, I think when you get in a study like this, um, you, as you get near the end, you're kind of ready to move to something else. Uh, but at the same time, um, it's like kind of leaving an old friend. You've been in it so long, you know. You kind of, you know, you kind of want to stick around a little bit longer. But it is the end of our study. But it also, chapter 50, represents the end of two lives. And in this chapter, uh, as we read it, you're going to see Moses is going to document the death of two men. Uh, The first one he's going to document is the death of Jacob. And he's going to do this in, in very great detail. And then he's going to just skip 50 years of history. He's just going to skip 50 years and he's going to document the death of, uh, of, of Joseph. So it, it doesn't take a rocket science scientist to figure out that death is the theme of this, uh, of this chapter. So there's got to be something important about their deaths that he wants us to see. Okay, it's got, I mean, d- this chapter is about death. And, and so there's got to be something important regarding these deaths that, that Moses wants us to see. Now if you've been with us from this in this book and in this study, you might think, well now this kind of seems like a a pretty abysmal end uh to a book. In fact, some of the commentaries I read said, well, you know, if Moses was a modern day writer, uh, he wasn't a very good one. Because you've got this great book and you just end with a coffin, basically is how it ends. But I think it's the absolute perfect ending. Because Think about it. Where else could it end? Every story on this earth is going to end with a coffin, right? That's how every story, your story, my story, her story, his story, all of our stories are going to end in death. So where else could this, where else would Genesis have ended? I think it's an absolute uh, perfect uh, ending. So uh, we're going to see how that kind of works out as we go through. So let's begin in Genesis 49. 29 to 32. And it says this, talking about Jacob, it says, Then he commanded them, talking to his sons, and he said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. You remember... Back in the story where Abraham bought the cave where he could bury uh, himself and Sarah, right? I mean, we, we went over all that. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the, from the Hittites. So Jacob is, we, we've said it before, Jacob's been dying for, for many years, but now he gets to the point where it's the real deal. Okay, He is very, very close. And before he dies, he gives very explicit, very detailed constructions uh, instructions to his sons about his burial. He wants to be taken back to the Promised Land. He wants to be taken back to Canaan. And he wants to be buried in the same cave that his, that his grandfather Abraham was buried in in the same cave that his father Isaac was buried in. Now, the first thing we want to see about this is his burial matters to him. It's important to him. Now, I think later on we're going to see, we're going to see why. But as I was studying this, something came to my mind. Kathy and I had heard a song a long time ago. Uh, it's called All My Tears. I don't know if you, any of you have ever heard this song. It's, it's, a, it's a great song. It was originally written in the early 90s. It's been performed by uh, various artists like Jars of Clay and Selah, and I think even uh, Lou Harris, the country singer, recorded this song. And it, it's called All My Tears Be Washed Away. And the and the chorus goes like this. It don't matter where you bury me, because I'll be home and I'll be free. It don't matter where I lay because all my tears will be washed away. Now, it's a really good song. And, and Kathy and I, the first time we, we heard it, we, we just played it over and over. It's a great song. But that song says, I was thinking about this, that song says, you know, it don't matter where you bury me. But to Jacob, it mattered. It did matter. You know, wouldn't it have just been easy just to say, you know, here we are in Egypt and all the families here, just bury me right here. Because it don't matter where I bury but to Jacob, it was important. It was very important. That's why he gives detailed instructions. And we'll look at that more as we, as we move through. Verse 33. So when Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed, and he breathed his last. And then I think one of the coolest statements in the Bible, he was gathered to his people. Now, it, we've seen this statement before. and Back in Genesis 25, it says, Abraham breathed his last and he was gathered to his people. When Isaac, uh, Jacob's father, died, it says the same thing. Isaac breathed his last in Genesis 35 and was gathered to his uh, people. Now, when you study this, some commentators kind of make the argument that this doesn't really mean anything, that it's just kind of a euphemism for, for death. But I don't believe that at all. Uh, I believe it was an ancient expression of the Of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it was an ancient way they expressed of their hope of life after death, not just going down to the grave, not just being buried in the dirt but or in a cave, but being gathered to their uh, people. By the way, Jacob is actually not going to be buried for three or four months you'll see this here in a minute it's going to take some time for for all this stuff to happen and get all the way back to the cave and be buried. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about his burial. It says he was gathered to his people at the very moment that he died. He, was, he went to heaven to be with his people uh, when, he, when he died. Look at verse uh, Genesis 51 through 3. Then Joseph fell on his father's face, and he wept over him, and he kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. Now, the process of embalming, we all have, if you you know, you went to high school and you studied uh, history, you see the pharaohs and the, the, that whole process of the mummies and stuff. So embalming is, is something, I don't know if it was invented in Egypt, but it's been something uh, that's been present in Egypt for thousands of years. Uh, we've got some descriptions of that process, and I, I actually edited this out because some of it was pretty, uh, uh, pretty graphic. There's a Greek historian by the name of Herodotus, and he lived uh, about the 5th century B.C., uh, and he actually described this process, and these are his words. So These, these, are, these words here are about 2,500 years old. It says, The body was given to the embalmers, who first took out the brain and the entrails and washed them in palm wine, impregnated with strong astringent drugs, after which they began to anoint the body with oil of cedar, myrrh, cinnamon, and cassia. They next put it into a solution of niter, which is a, a chemical, we, all, we know it today as saltpeter, so that they allowed 70 days to complete the abalming, after which they bound it up in swaths of linen, besmeared with gum. Being then able to resist putrefaction, it was delivered to the relatives, enclosed in a wooden, or paper case somewhat resembling a coffin, and they laid in the catacomb or grave belonging to the family where it was placed in an upright position against the the wall. So so Joseph, again, this was very common in, in Egypt. It was, it was very customary for dignitaries. <clears throat> I, I don't think everybody in Egypt was embalmed, but for dignitaries, if you were royalty, <clears throat> excuse me, you were someone of importance, uh, they would embalm you. Now, this is more. I don't know if this is really being done for Jacob because he's a dignitary. I'm not saying it wouldn't have been, but this really has a much more practical use because they've got to take his body all the way back to Canaan, which is a journey of probably at least several weeks, right? So this is more. Uh, this is this is really more out of a practicality. They've got to somehow keep his body, uh, you know, from doing what bodies do after they die. It's a long way back to Canaan. And so I think that's probably more why he had him embalmed than, uh, than, than just because he was some kind of a, a dignitary. As a side note, by the way, do you remember when Rachel, when, uh, uh, when Jacob and everybody was coming from Haran and they were coming to the Promised Land and they got to Bethlehem and Rachel died? Y'all remember that, giving birth to Benjamin? And it says he buried her there. By the way, couldn't make it. Well, that, see, he didn't have access to embalmers. And that day, when you died, they buried you right there. They couldn't say, well, load them up in the wagon and let's take them. No, that, because you didn't have access to embalmers. So the body would begin to deteriorate in, that, in the heat and stuff very quickly. So that's probably one of the reasons that he had, to bury, um, he had to bury Rachel right there where she died in Bethlehem and not be able to get her back to uh, the cave of Machpelah. So anyway, they're going to embalm Jacob. So uh, Joseph instructs the physicians to embalm him. It's a process that takes about 70 days. And so the Egyptians uh, join Joseph in mourning. And so they make this big to-do about mourning. And it's, it's, it's out of respect for Joseph, out of respect for Jacob. And so they go through this whole process. So 70 days go by. And after that, the burial plan is put into place, verses 4 through 6. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die. In my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there you shall bury me. Now therefore let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear." By the way, do you notice that that Joseph doesn't talk to Pharaoh? He talks to the household of Pharaoh. Listen, he's second in command. I'm sure he can talk to Pharaoh. This probably had something to do with uh, some kind of ceremonial defilement. You know, even in the the Jewish law, the Mosaic law, when you were around um, a dead person, you were defiled for a certain amount of time. The Egyptians probably had something like that. That when somebody died, you couldn't just go in and talk to Pharaoh. You had to have a certain amount of time go by until you were, quote, cleansed or whatever the case may be. So he doesn't speak to Pharaoh. He speaks to people in the household and they go to Pharaoh and and Pharaoh gives permission. Verses 7-9. through So Joseph went up to bury his father and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. So they, they, they get this funeral procession, and all the dignitaries, all the elders of the land of Egypt, all the, all the children, all the wives, all the grown, everybody that was old enough to go... It's just huge procession. And then joining them, of course, is chariots and horsemen. And they probably go along for security, right? Because it's a long journey. A lot of things can happen. So you've just got this huge amount of of, of people that are going along in this funeral procession. Now, it, it evidently, it is a huge funeral procession. In fact, it's so big that the people of the land that they go through, had never seen anything like this. It makes a, a huge impression on them. Look at verses 10-11. to When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation, and he made a mourning for his father seven days. And when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians, therefore the place was named which means the place of mourning, and it is beyond the Jordan. Now, it tells us twice something. It says they went beyond the Jordan. Now, for some reason, they went kind of an odd route, okay? And I'll show you a map. Normally, they would have just kind of traveled to the north, and they would have came in toward Canaan from the, from the Mediterranean seaside, on this side of the Jordan. Some reason, though, they went all the way around, and they had to cross... Uh, the Jordan. So this is—I don't know if you guys can see that—but the Egypt is is down there on the on the in the southwest there. The red would be a normal trade route. Those are the normal routes you would go up, and you would approach uh, you would approach Canaan again from the Mediterranean Sea. You'd never have to cross the Jordan. But they didn't go that route. They actually went around kind of where the green lines are, and they came in from the uh, from the other side. Now, the mo- we don't. We're not told why. The most logical explanation is there was some kind of uh, political unrest or something, and so they, instead of trying to go through it, they just went. They just went around it. But for whatever reason, they come from the other side of uh, Jordan. So they get to this place called the the a um, uh, Todd, the and they stop there before they go into the land, and they stay there for seven days, and they have one more big mourning, lamentations. <clears throat> uh, so it's one final opportunity to grieve uh, with, uh, with the Egyptians, with, with Joseph and his family. It seems like from there, though, the Egyptians stay, and the family goes into the land, and they go and take care of the burial uh, by themselves. Verses 12 through 14. Thus his sons did for him as he commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan, and they buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the, with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. And after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. So they go and they bury him. They go back, they rejoin the Egyptians, and they all travel back to uh, Egypt. Now... If you're reading along, at this point, you may have noticed something unusual. You notice how it talks about the grief of the Egyptians, and it talks about the grief of Joseph. But you notice Moses never mentions the brothers, never talks about their grief at all. That, that's kind of unusual. He even talks about how the Egyptians grieved. But he never says anything about the brothers. Now, I'm not, that's not to say they weren't grieving because I'm, I'm absolutely sure they, they were. But there's another emotion at work in them even stronger than their, uh, than their grief, and that's guilt. And Moses brings that up. Look at verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they say, you know what? It might be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for the evil... That we did to him. So their father is dead, and all they can worry about is what Joseph is going to do to them. That, that overrides even their, their grief. You see, 17 years have gone by. We can't forget that. 17 years since they, Joseph has revealed himself to him. And, and in that 17 years, they, Joseph has forgiven them, but in 17 years, they still have not accepted that forgiveness. In other words, they're, they're living in the land, but they're, they're always in the back of their mind, boy, Joseph, one day, one day he's going to show his true colors. One day, when our father's dead, he's going to, he's going to rise up and he's going to kill us all. They, they could not accept the fact that somebody could really forgive them uh, in that way. You see, in their mind, Joseph's only treating them good because their daddy's alive. See, in their mind, that as soon as Jacob is gone for good... Joseph is free to do with them what, they, uh, what, what he pleases. Now, you may ask, well, why would they think that way? Why would they think that Joseph is like that? Because that's how they were. Do you remember years ago back in the land of Canaan when they hated Joseph? They were always looking for ways to get rid of him, right? And they finally had an opportunity when they were miles away from their daddy. They, they had him all away from his daddy and they thought, okay... Now that our dad's not around, we can do with him as we want to. That's the way they thought. So they assumed because we think this way, that must be the way Joseph thinks as well. You see, one thing always prevented them from hurting him, and that was their father. And when that golden opportunity arose for them, they took advantage of it, and they just assumed, well, Joseph's the same as us. Now he's got this opportunity, and he's going to take it, okay? And that thought, consume them they they even more than the grief for their father this thought of of their guilt and what they had done and what joseph is going to do they just couldn't get it off their minds they kept thinking about it and eventually it grew it even outgrew grief and it became fear and so this fear prompted a plan which they put into place look at verses 16 and 18 so they sent a message to joseph saying your father gave this command before he died Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. Okay, so they're going to. They're, what they're trying to do is, but hey, right before he died, Daddy said to tell you this. <laughs> you know, I mean, they're just. It's just an outright lie, and Joseph has already forgiven them, and now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. I mean, again, this just shows jo- Joseph's listening to this, and he, he's just like. What are you talking about? Seventeen years have gone by. I forgot you guys seventeen years ago, and you're still living with this. I mean, it, it 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 touched him so deeply that he actually wept. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, "Behold, we are your servants." Now, if you want to know how a godly man should respond to unjust persecution, if you want to know how a godly man should should respond. This is how right here. Just watch Joseph. Joseph is a model for all of us. When we go through things, people have treated us wrongly. Joseph is a model to go to. This is what he says, verses 19 to 21. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. If if you want to know how a godly man or a godly woman should respond uh, to situations like this, Joseph's his response checks off all, the, uh, all the, the 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 things that you should do. Number one, he understood that vengeance belongs to God, not man. That's what he said. Am I in the place of God? Right? The, the Bible tells us uh, other places, don't take vengeance for yourself, leave it to God. God, God He'll, He'll make everything right. Number two, he understood that God used their sin for good. He says, You meant it for, for, for evil, you meant it for bad, but God meant it for good. And he said, I can accept that and live with it. And finally, he returned kindness for cruelty. He actually comforts them, right? He's already forgiven them. They, they're feeling guilty, they're scared, and he actually comforts them. He returns kindness for cruelty. A godly man responds in a godly way. And by the way, he would treat them the exact same way for the rest of his life. Take care of them and their little ones as well. Now, right here, Moses is going to skip 50 years. 50 years are going to go by, and we don't, Moses doesn't tell us anything about it. Between verses 21 and 22, actually, if you, do the, if you count it up, we think 54 years go by between the death of Jacob and the death of Joseph. Now, why would Moses do that? Because he is intent on placing the death of Joseph right alongside the death of Jacob. What happens in the interim? He could care less. It's irrelevant. It has nothing to do with the story. What he wants us to focus on is death. And these two deaths... Uh, specifically, Look at verses 22 to 20, 26. Again, 50 years have passed between 21 and 22. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house, and Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And the Hebrew says literally were born on his his knees. And Joseph said to his brothers, "'I'm about to die.'" So so Joseph lives a, a, a good life, full life. He gets to see his great-grandchildren. And he gets to the point where he's going to die. And he pulls everybody in, just like his father. And he gives specific instructions about his burial. This is what I want you to do with my, with my bones. Now, once again, what you and I need to see, it matters. Does it not? It's important to him. He doesn't say, hey you know what, man, I'm, 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 I'm going on to be with my people. I'm going to be with God. I don't really care what you do with my bones. I don't care what you do. No, it mattered to him. His burial mattered. So let's look at both of these. And again, I think this is what Moses wants us to see. This is all about death and burial and the fact that it was important to them. Both of them wanted to be buried in Canaan. Okay, They wanted their burial to have a purpose. So what purpose did their burial serve? Well, their burial serves, the I think, the exact same purpose that you and I, our burial, should, should serve. That is to serve as a pointer and a reminder. Okay? A pointer and a reminder. Jacob's death, he says, hey, I'm about to die. I want you to take me now. Don't wait but take me now and let's go back to Canaan. Now, why would he want that? I think because he wanted his boys, he wanted his family to see the land of promise one more time. Remember, those boys are going to die in Egypt. When they go back to Egypt, they're going to die there. As far as we know, they never go back. But he wanted them to see Canaan. He wanted them to see the promised land one more time. And the way they did that was by transporting his body all the way back to the land of Canaan. You see, his burial served a purpose. It served as a one-time reminder to those boys that God is going to visit you one day and your descendants are going to go back. That's a reminder. It, it, it reminded them one day, this is your land. This is the cave that your grandfather bought and, and your, great-grandfather, uh, your great-grandfather bought. Your grandfather lies here. I'm going to lie here. And one day your descendants, this is your land. His burial pointed to that as a reminder. Joseph's coffin, on the other hand, same thing, but it was a different... It wasn't a one-time reminder, it was a continual reminder. Day after day, for 400 years, Joseph's coffin sat there as a reminder that one day, you've got to take my bones back when you go. You know, it's a funny thing, we forget it. By the way, that's exactly what happened. Exodus 13, 19... Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. Four hundred years go by, Moses arises, goes in, the whole plagues, leads the children of Egypt out. And when they went, guess what? They took that coffin with them. They took Joseph's coffin with them. This is something we forget. Do you know 40 years in the wilderness? Day after day, guess what they're carrying? They're carrying that coffin. We forget about that. But for 40 years, they carried Joseph's coffin in the wilderness with them. I think this is the key to the passage, and I think this is what Moses wants us to see. Both of those men, Jacob and Joseph, determined that their burial would serve two purposes. Number one, it would be a testimony to their faith. And number two, it would be a stimulus to the faith of their descendants. It would be a stimulus to the faith of others. You are going to the promised land. Take me with you when God comes. Right? So both of their burials served a a purpose. Now, what do you and I take out of this? Well, as I said when we started, this is a perfect ending to me to Genesis because all of our stories end just like Jacob's and just like Joseph's. It's all going to end with a coffin. So... Here's the question: Should our burials matter? Should our burials matter? Does it really matter? Well, I, my, my, I'm, I'm here to say, absolutely, it does, that our burial is our last statement to be. It, Jacob's last statement was, "This is what I want you to do with my body." Joseph's last statement, "This is what I want you to do with my bones." Our last statement of our faith, our last act of faith, is how we're buried what happens, what's said, those kind of things, right? So absolutely it matters. I want to, I want to close with this. We've been in this 19 months in this study of, of Genesis, and if you go back to January of 2018, it all started with paradise, didn't it? You know, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created an absolute paradise. And it ends with a coffin. I mean, it's, again, it starts in paradise and ends with a coffin. But Genesis 50, by the way, is not the end of the story. Just as a coffin is not the end of, of our story. Moses himself will still will write four more books. He'll write Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. God will ordain that another 61 books will be written before it's all over. And the final book of Revelation, guess what? We return to paradise. Let's read about it because it's I mean it's a wonder we we end with a coffin, but that's not the end for us. Revelation twenty one tells us this Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. You see, the coffin is not the end for us. Just as the Genesis 50 is not the, the, the end of the story. I want to close this morning... With a view of a what I call a Christian perspective on on death, I actually uh, preached a sermon here on a Wednesday night several years ago on this. I had read a book uh, by on a, it was a biography of a guy by the name of of uh, Martin Lloyd Jones, who was a, a preacher over in England, and I was reading his biography. And it got to the end, and it it dealt with his death and how he died. And that the the end of that, I really, be honest with you, I can't really remember much of the rest of it, but I remember the end. I remember some of the things that he said about dying, and that really uh, stuck with me. Three things on a Christian perspective. Number one, we should not fear death. We should not fear death. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, The hope of a sudden death, is based upon the fear of death. But death is not something to slip by. It should be victorious. What is this brief earthly life in context of eternity? He's saying the exact same thing that the writer of Hebrews... Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. "...since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, talking about Jesus, likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Now listen to this. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. The writer of Hebrews says that the fear of death is like being a slave. You are never free. You are never truly free if you go through this life afraid to die. That's what he's saying. Does everybody see that? It's like a slavery. But Jesus came to deliver us from that slavery. To, set us, to make us truly free, free indeed. Now, how does He do that as a Christian? Why should we be free? Because the sting of death is guilt. The sting of death is judgment. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, 56. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, and 10 says, God is not destined us for wrath. We are forgiven. God's not... Listen, there will be a judgment on the other side, but it will be a different kind of judgment. It will be a judgment of your works, what you did. It will be a reward type judgment. But the judgment for sin, the judgment of wrath, we don't go through that at all. We're free from that. So death for us is stepping into eternity, It's stepping into eternal life, true life, real life for the very first time. It should be a wonderful thing, not something that we should, should fear. For me, I I try to think of it like a roller coaster. Have any of y'all like roller coasters? You know, if you get on a roller coaster, listen, everybody, you sit in that seat, there's a little bit of fear, right? You can't help it. That's what makes a good roller coaster. But the fact is, you know you're going to be okay. It's thrilling, right? Death's kind of like that. It's the unknown. But we shouldn't fear it because there's going to be judgment on the other side. We are free from that, and we need to live like that. D.L. Moody said this, Soon you will read in the newspaper that I am dead. Don't believe it for a moment. I will be more alive than ever before. Man, if we could live our lives like that, that, that it's not the end, it is a beginning. and In fact, it's the real beginning of true life. Number one, don't fear death. Number two, live your life with a view towards death. Live your life with a view towards death. Martin Lloyd Jones said this, the world is too much with us. We we hold on to life so tenaciously and that is so wrong, so different from the New Testament. Even until last November, so so he you can see he was born in 1899, he died in 1981. He was he was uh, diagnosed with cancer when he was about uh, when he was about 81 years old. And he died I think when he was at, right around 82, 83. He said this, even until last November when he was 80 years old, I wasn't conscious of my age. I felt it was ridiculous to talk about it because when we feel well and active, it's difficult to realize that the end is near. In Colombia, there's a city of about a half million people called Pasto, Colombia, and it is built at the foot of an active volcano. I mean, literally, You, you can go look at pictures of it. The volcano smokes all the time. I mean, it's active. Sometimes lava will even run down the sides of it. But those people live right there with that active volcano. And every day, they get up and go to work. Every day, they take their kids to school. They they you know they patch their roof. They buy their groceries. They tend their garden. They, they live their lives, but they know, just one glance looks up, and they know at any moment, it could all be gone. Listen, guys, that's the way it should be for us. We live lives. We, ha- we, we should enjoy life, live peaceable lives, full lives, fellowship, come to church. do. A- but we should know that at any moment, it could be gone. Any moment, it could be gone. It could be this roof could collapse. I could get in a car accident on the way home. I can die of a heart. Any moment, it could be gone. That's the way that you and I should, should live our lives. By the way, it's exactly what the Bible tells us to do. Colossians 3, 1 through 3. If you've been raised with Christ, seek things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things of this earth. Live with an eternal perspective, knowing that eternity could come at any second. It could all be over. That's the way we should... This stuff here it's just temporary. It is absolutely temporary. Set your mind on things that are eternal. Now, by the way, don't take this wrong. I'm not saying we shouldn't focus on living. But I'm saying that our perspective on death should make us live differently than other people. Does that make sense? Our focus on our perspective on eternity should make us live our lives differently. Remember last week we talked about the purpose of prophecy. The purpose of prophecy is to is to say there's something coming. There are things out there in the future that are coming and, and Peter says, with that in mind, shouldn't you live holy lives? Shouldn't you live pure lives, knowing that all this is just going to melt away? So that's the way we should live our lives. Jonathan Edwards, everybody know who Jonathan Edwards was? Jonathan Edwards was a preacher in the, in the 1700s up in New England. Very famous, very famous preacher. And he, he was one of the preachers that was active in New England during the Great Awakening. Uh, the great revival that hit, hit here in the United States. He was an amazing guy. He graduated, I believe, from Princeton uh, when he was like 18 years old. Uh, he went to Princeton when he was like 16 and graduated from Princeton when he was like 18. I mean, he's just a super smart guy. But he was a very godly man. When he was 19 years old, now listen to this. Now, how many 19-year-olds you would know would do this? When he was 19-year-old, he sat down and he wrote out 70 resolutions by which he wanted to live his life. Seventy. And every week for the rest of his life, he would sit down once a week and he'd read all 70 of them. He did that for 35 uh, years. I think he died when he was 54. So writes them out when he's 19, reads them once a week for 35 years. Every single week he'd go through and read every one of them. I want to read you three of his resolutions. Number nine. Resolved to think much on all occasions of my dying and of the common circumstances which attend death. He resolved, I'm going to think, even at 19, 20, 21, I'm going to keep my death in mind. I'm always going to be thinking about it because it it keeps everything in perspective, right? That's the point. Number 22, this is one of my favorite, resolved to endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can. Let me read that to you again. Resolve to obtain for myself as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can. To lay up treasures in heaven. To do things that are of eternal significance, not just temporary significance. And then, of course, frequently, 52, this would be a great one for any young person. I frequently hear persons in old age say how they would live if they were to live their lives over again. Resolve that I will live my life the way I will wish I had. Supposing I live to old age. Now, that's a good resolution. That's a good resolution. I will live my life the way that I will wish I had when I look back on it. Go ahead and just do it up front. Number three, we shouldn't fear death. We should live our lives with a view on death. And number three, our death should bring glory to God. Our death should bring glory to God. Martin Lord Jones said this, People say about sudden death, it's a wonderful way to go. But I have come to the conclusion that is quite wrong. I think the way we go out of this world is very important. And this is my great desire now, that I may perhaps be enabled to bear a greater testimony than ever before. I think we all go through life, and and somebody was saying it the other day. I was talking to somebody that somebody had just died in their sleep, and they thought, well, that's just the way to go. You know, you don't have to endure any kind of pain. You ain't got to have any kind of worry. Martin Lord Jones says, I don't think that's the best way to go. He says, having this time, he had about three months. They sent him home from the hospital and said, there's nothing else we can do. And, and, and he had about three months. And he felt like that three months was the most important three months of his life. It was his final testimony, his final way to give glory to God. By the way, it's exactly what the Bible says. Paul says in Philippians 1.20, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul says, I want Christ to be honored in my death. Honored in death. Glory in death. Same thing the Bible says. You see, I want to die like Jacob and Joseph. I've said this all the time, I want to die well. I want to die well. I want my death to have purpose. I want my my death and burial to be... It's the final testimony that you give a chance to have. I want my death and, and my burial to be a testimony to my family and to people that know me, a testimony of my faith and a stimulus to your faith and their faith. But let me tell you something, I don't think that's something that just happens. I, I think if you want your death to be a testimony, if you want to bring glory to God, you've got to start getting ready today. I, I have a, I've, I've married a few people over the last few years, and I've had a chance to sit down and, and, and counsel young couples before they get married. And, and one of the questions that I ask them is this, do you want to be sitting... Now, these are couples, you know, 20, 21, 22, 23 years old. And one of the questions I ask them, I said, do you want to be sitting on a porch one day with the love of your life sitting there beside you in the rocking chair and your, your great-grandchildren, grandchildren just running around your feet? Do you want that? And, of course, everybody says, yeah, that would be awesome. And my point is that starts today. That doesn't just happen by accident, right? That's a lot of years of hard work and effort and prayer and, and holiness. And getting, And then one day you look up and there's just the rewards. You're just reaping the rewards. But that started way back before any of them were even a thought. I think our death is the same way. I think our death can have purpose and meaning, but it doesn't just happen by, by chance. I think you start today preparing. You live your life. I, I think I wrote this thought down. I think maybe how you live determines how you die. Does that make sense? How you live really determines how you die. I, I, listen, and I won't, go, I won't beat this up. It's probably a bad way to end this, but you guys know by now I'm not a big fan of cremation. Just not a big fan of it. Because I, I think there's something about putting you in that coffin and putting you in the ground and facing east saying, I'm looking for him. I'm waiting for him. He's coming to get me. There's just something about that. And I understand there's a cost. And by the way, I don't think cremation is a sin. Don't don't get me wrong. I do not I think you can be cremated if you want to. That's your business. But it ain't for me. I want my death and my burial to make a statement of my faith in Jesus Christ and the hope that I'm looking for one day. And you can, drive out to this, you can drive out to that road and take a right and go down by Lake Ellen, and, and you'll see all those gravestones and they're all facing east. Because the Bible tells us that He's going to split the eastern sky. They're looking east. They're not facing north or west or south. They're looking east because they're waiting. it's a testimony to faith that they're waiting for their Savior. Let's pray. Hey, by the way, next week we're going to start something new in two weeks. So next week we're going to do something a little bit different. Something I've never done is uh, uh, I'm going to give my just take a quick break and just give my testimony about some of the things that's, uh, that that's happened to me. And so we'll cover that uh, next Sunday, August the fourth, and then the following Sunday, August the eleventh, we will uh, pick up with our new study. Let's pray.